Freakish History takes a deep dive into stranger-than-fiction historical events and plops the listener down in the middle of the bizarre and compelling action. In Season 1, we head to Cleveland, Ohio for the Tencent Beer Night Riot of 1974. Welcome to Heading for Home, a 10 cent beer night odyssey. I'm Eric Olson. Every year, the media celebrate the anniversary of the 10 cent beer night riot of 1974 at Cleveland Stadium. Fans, awash in cheap beer, streaked, chanted obscenities, pelted the players with everything from hot dogs to explosives, then charged the field and brawled viciously with the visiting Texas Rangers and their own home team Indians. This is that story. Before we launch into the Heading for Home docudrama next week, let's dig into the events of that fateful game at Cleveland Stadium on June 4th, 1974. This week, we speak with journalists Vince Guerreri and Bob Dyer. Vince Guerreri is a journalist in the Cleveland area. His work has appeared in publications as varied as Popular Mechanics, Ohio Magazine, Cleveland Magazine, City Lab, and Defector. He's the author of Weird Moments in Cleveland Sports and several other books on regional sports history. Welcome, Vince. How you doing? I am doing very, very well. Well, you are an expert on many aspects of Cleveland history, popular culture, sports, socioeconomic, etc. Why don't we start with, where do you place this team, this Indians team, in 1974 in the context of Indians history? Well, the the Indians were really, really good in the 40s and 50s, and they were really, really good in the 90s. And then there was like this great big fallow period in between. They, they, there were uh, a lot of respects. They couldn't get out of their own way. Um, they would find some talent and then, you know, promptly let it go. Or they would find some talent that wouldn't amount to what they thought would they were going to amount to. Uh, but, you know, the the biggest thing that I don't think a lot of people realize about the team is that pretty much from the mid to late 50s up until um, they were able to put the deal together for Gateway in the 80s, the team was always a hair's breadth from moving. Uh, in the 50s and 60s, they were linked to any city. A lot of cities that ended up getting uh, other relocated teams or even expansion teams. There was talk of them moving to Minnesota at one point. There was talk with, with Houston before they got the, the Astros. There was talk with uh, Oakland before they got the Athletics. Uh, the, the two largest public flirtations, one was in the 60s when the lease ran out. Uh, it, it seemed like they were, they were trying to move to Seattle. And then in the early 70s, uh, Vernon Stouffer owned the team, and Stouffer as in the frozen pizzas and macaroni and cheese. Um, you know, he was, he had had some financial setbacks, and he was uh, not able to spend as much as he would have liked. And that was the other thing, too. Uh, and you even see it today. Um, you know, owners, uh, the owners of the team may not spend as much as, as you would like. And and quite honestly, in the, in the 60s and 70s, there were a lot of, of uh, guys who who own the team who may not have had that much disposable income to spend anyway, uh, but anyway, Vernon Stouffer uh, said, you know, once they build this new domed stadium in New Orleans, uh, the Indians are going to play. Uh, I think it was forty home games in New Orleans uh, every year, and and the Indians had used New Orleans as their spring training site. Uh, Nick Maletti bought the team in in the early seventies. Uh, right after Vernon Stouffer uh, scuttled a deal with uh, George Steinbrenner, of all people. But uh, Nick Maletti bought the team, and one of the first things he said is, we're not playing any games in in um, in New Orleans. But the, the Indians were still kind of hanging on by a thread. In 1973, they got 75,000 people for opening day. It was, you, you know, like, just like it is now. Uh, you get a really good opening day crowd, and they just happen to have an enormous stadium. And 
that was 10% of their total attendance for the year. <laughs> That's amazing. Think about that one game. Right. 10%. So things were kind of tenuous for the Indians going into the 74 season. Absolutely. So ownership was Maletti. Who are the other key players as far as management of the team? And how was the team being handled? What was the perception at that point? Well, uh, uh, I believe um, Gabe Paul had left for the Yankees after the the deal uh, with Vernon Stouffer to buy the Indians uh, went south. George Steinbrenner kicked the tires on the Tigers of all all teams. It, that would have been a partnership with with John DeLorean of all people. Huh. But uh, he ended up buying the Yankees, and he ended up uh, hiring Gabe Paul away. So uh, Phil Segge was the the front office guy at that point. Uh, interestingly enough, at the time, a minority I believe a minority stockholder in the Indians was a guy who had made his fortune in Cleveland in advertising, uh, Ted Stepien, who would later go on to infamy owning the Cavaliers. Uh, the owner, the manager of the team on the field was Ken Aspermani, and he was one of those guys who's kind of a lifer in baseball. Uh, he had had a, a decent but unspectacular career as a player and then knocked around as a coach and, and, and a manager. He played in Japan, too. Among other places, yes. And, and that actually you know, was kind of a big deal at that point because you didn't see a lot of Japanese players coming to America and you certainly did not see as many American players going to Japan as you would see, I mean, even into the, uh, even into the 80s and 90s, you know, where um, that's, that's where Cecil Fielder kind of got his swing back and then came to Detroit and hit a lot of home runs. I, I'm pretty sure that Julio Franco played in Japan for a little while as well. He's probably still playing in Japan somewhere for all we know. At 60. Right. But it was one of those teams, you know, in the in the early 70s, the the athletics were were the class of the league. I mean, they were at 74, they were on their way to their third straight uh World Series uh World Series win and they had put together this this team just loaded with talent and and I guess uh, a lot of them didn't like each other, but they all came together because they all hated the owner of the team, Charlie Finley. Um, so the Indians were kind of kind of middle of the pack. Um, Oakland was was uh, the the power in the American League West, and at that point, Baltimore was still the one of the big powers in the American League East. Uh, they had, uh, give me a minute, they had gone to the World Series in '69 and lost, gone in '70 and won, gone in '71 and lost. So they were. Uh, that was a pretty good team uh, that was assembled in part by Hank Peters, who would come to Cleveland actually after the Orioles fired him in the uh, in the late 80s. The Indians had some high-quality players, though, on that team. They really did. The, the, in 72, uh, Gaylord Perry won the Cy Young Award. He was the last Indians pitcher to win the Cy Young Award until C.C. Sabathia 25 years later. He's also the last Indians pitcher to win 20 games in a season until Cliff Lee even after that. And, um, you know, he was he was definitely the main talent on that team. I, I'm pretty sure he was the only Hall of Famer uh, on that team at that point. But you had a lot of, of good, solid players. Uh, George Steinbrenner actually said uh, in an interview, I want to say when they went when the Yankees went to their first World Series, under his ownership in 77, that the Indians actually had more talent than the Yankees did when he bought the Yankees. Interesting. All right. So uh, we're coming up to this game on June 4th, and the team is doing somewhat better than expected. I think they were one game under 500 going into that game, and they are playing the Texas Rangers. And there was a very significant episode with the Rangers just five days before. Uh, I believe that was also a 10-cent beer night in Texas. Um, that was a very popular um, promotion at the time. The The Indians in 74 had actually scheduled four different 10-cent beer nights. They, they had scheduled a litany of promotions just to kind of get people into, into the ballpark. They hadn't drawn at least a million fans, I think, since 59. But uh, yeah, about a week before that, uh, there was a game in Texas, and and the Rangers were were, I mean, mediocre would be a generous characterization of them too. Uh, it was a team that was really going nowhere fast, but 
Lenny Randall popped off and said, yeah, Gaylord Perry isn't that good. He's washed up. He wouldn't do it, be able to do anything if he couldn't, if he didn't throw the spitball. Uh, Milt Wilcox was pitching. Uh, he buzzed Lenny Randall. Randall put down a bunt. Um, one of the other infielders took it and Wilcox went to cover first. And uh, Lenny put a little forearm shiv into him. Quite a forearm shift and from his football the, days. And the fight was on. And, and it, I mean, if you watch baseball, you know that most baseball fights aren't that big a deal. I mean, there's some jawing, some shoving, you know, maybe a couple of haymakers get thrown. But this was a real honest-to-God fight. And, and apparently, after the game, somebody mentioned to Billy Martin, who was the manager of the Rangers at the time, that um, they were going to do this again. Uh, they were going to play the Indians a week later in Cleveland. It, was he worried about any kind of reprisals? And and Billy Martin said something to the effect of, I don't think there'll be enough fans there for us to worry about it. Ex exactly right. That is exactly right. All right, so I'm glad you mentioned that this was not the only 10-cent beer night because kind of the, the perception these days, looking back, is... Oh my God, how could you be selling beer so cheap? And it was 18 and over, and oh, that's also irresponsible. But 10 cent beer nights, or at least cheap beer nights, as you mentioned, that was a pretty common promotion. There was nothing particularly unusual about it. Going back years, I mean, Bill Veck, before he owned the Indians, and we're talking like World War II, he owned the Milwaukee Brewers at the time, a minor league team. And he would talk about how you know, because of grain rationing, the ballpark was the only place that people could go and get beer. So, I mean, you know, it was always a fundamental part of the baseball experience at that point. And, and I mean, it was the, uh, it was the seventies, you know, the drinking age was, had been lowered to 18 and, um, you know, there was not, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, drinking too much, was not as socially unacceptable as it would become even a decade later. Well, even the driving, the drunk driving laws weren't nearly as draconian as they are now. No, as no. they became and, after MAD. And this would be, and I believe this was about a year before, maybe two years before, uh, George W. Bush actually got popped for driving under the influence in Maine, which was a big issue uh, in the waning days of the 2000 presidential election. But uh, yeah, I mean, and, and that's, uh, that's right. It was not, you know, the crime that public drunkenness was not the crime it would become. Drinking and driving was not the crime it would become. So it was very common to have um, these kind of beer-related promotions uh, throughout Major League Baseball. Like I said, I, the, the, they had them in Texas. They obviously had them in, in Milwaukee, and they were going to have them in, in, in Cleveland. All right, so we know it's it's pretty good guess that certainly the abundance of beer and its availability, and um, there were ostensibly limits, but they were clearly not enforced. Actually, I don't think there were any limits for that game. The Indians actually had a ten cent beer night a month later, after after the disaster, and nobody remembers that one because nothing nothing went happened, wrong. and that was the one where. Uh, they said the first two are ten cents. The, anything after that is is regular price, which I think was sixty five cents at the time. And they had uh, tripled security. They had learned their lesson from from the one in June. That's why no one hears about that game. All right, so beer was a factor, clearly, maybe even perhaps the factor, but. There had to have been other underlying circumstances and tones and and uh, through lines that also contributed to this one event turning into such a unhinged, nightmarish, some like like some sort of Bosch painting uh, breaking out on the field. So, what are some of the socioeconomic, political conditions that you think contributed to this actual event breaking out where it did the perfect storm? Well, I, you know, I think chief among that, and I don't know if I'd call this a socioeconomic factor, but a lot of people I, I, I have talked to about this said it was the beginning of June, Colleges were just letting out. There were a lot of people who were 
looking for a good time or looking to get into trouble. It was not your typical baseball crowd. But, you know, I, I at that point, Cleveland was a place where a lot of things were happening and none of them seemed to be really, really good. Uh, you know, you had... Um, you know, the race riots in the Huff in 66, you had the Glenville shootout in 68. Uh, you had people leaving the city in droves. You had companies leaving the city in droves. Um, you know, Cleveland in 1974 was on the mer- on the verge of a mob war. And I mean, there was just all kinds of, of things that were happening and none of them were positive. So any other thoughts about just what was going on nationally at the time? I, there were a lot of, uh, people who were angry about a lot of things. And there were a lot of people who were, uh, partaking in controlled substances for good reasons or ill reasons. I mean, this, we're still not that far removed from people, um, you know, the scientific experimentation with LSD, but because they thought that you could achieve a higher consciousness or something, but there were a lot of people who just like controlled substances and wanted to partake. And it sounded like uh, that night, uh, there were a lot of controlled substances that were uh, partaken that were not just beer. You know, I, 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 I have talked to a couple of people who were there and, and they said it was very easy to get a contact high. Right. And, and it wasn't just even at the stadium. People did some serious pregame partying. We, the reports of people openly drinking on the trains on the way to the stadium. Which is kind of funny because you normally don't see that now except for Brown Sundays. <laughs> well, it's probably not a coincidence, I'm thinking. All right, so what are your thoughts on the meaning? Uh, you know, that, that's a very vague sort of concept, but what what is the meaning? What are the lessons from, from Tencent Beer Night? And is is part of that, some, somewhere in there is the serendipity that despite all of these elements and a really quite high level of violence by the time things had completely broken loose in the ninth inning, it's it's remarkable and it's certainly part of the myth that no one was killed or there weren't even any serious injuries. That Yes, and, and that's, um, you know, that is a matter of luck because you hear these these terrible stories. I mean, you know, there was a guy who uh, fell or jumped out of the upper deck and ended up on the the netting above the um, the the main seating bowl. Uh, there's 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 that very famous picture of uh, Tom Hilgendorf being escorted off the field after somebody threw a folding chair that hit him. You know, you hear about all of these these fights, but again, you know, a lot of them are baseball fights, so there's some some jawing and some shoving and some haymakers. So I mean, it wasn't that bad. Um, but, and you got to remember too, most of the people who were fighting were gassed. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you can't really, uh, uh, give full force to your fury when you're, when you're tanked. But on the other hand, you had the players who, who were, who were not at that point anyway, they hadn't been drinking. Right. It, was, it was during the game and they're taking off out onto the field, you know, fully revved up and armed with bats and wearing helmets. And wearing helmets, you know, taking off uh, after these what what became rioters. You know, it's still kind of amazing that somehow, some way, the 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 uh, stars were aligned, because we would think of this event so differently if there had been a death or even perhaps you know one or more serious injuries if someone had been paralyzed or something, and. The way it is brought up now, the way it's presented in the media, it's it's kind of this unicorn of adventure and violence, but with a happy ending. Which is really kind of funny because the 70s in Major League Baseball was a really interesting time. Um, there were actually several forfeitures of to, to that effect. Um a couple of years earlier, the Senators had played their last game at RFK Stadium, and they couldn't finish that game because people were jumping on the field trying to, and it was the same kind of thing. They were trying to take souvenirs. They were, you know, uh, maybe there were some people there that were spoiling for a fight. And and there are some common threads. Uh, Dick Bosman was the starting pitcher for the Senators 
in in that last game at RFK, and he came in in relief at Ten Cent Beer Night. Uh, Milt Wilcox was a pitcher for the Indians. He was the guy that that Lenny Randall put a forearm into a week earlier. And at the end of the decade, he was uh, supposed to pitch the game for the Tigers that they ended up winning by forfeit on Disco Demolition Night. So, I mean, there are all of these moments that, you know, things just kind of get a little out of hand and, and you know, mercifully, uh, the endings were not happy, but not particularly bad. All right. Well, what do you think the lessons are um, ultimately in the big picture? What, what do you think of when you think of the 10 cent beer night riot at Cleveland Stadium in 1974? Well, I think the the lessons were all learned by the team and then implemented a month later. You know, limit your how much you're serving people and uh, make sure you have enough people uh, around in case something goes awry. Because like I said, they, they tripled security for that uh, second game in July. Uh, they had Cleveland police. I think they had sheriff's deputies. You know, there were all kinds of people there to make sure. And, and one of the one of the writers, the, the guy who covered it for the Cleveland press said, you know, it, it might as well have been a church social out there. I mean, there was, I think he said you could literally hear the foam uh, disintegrating in people's beer cups at that point. It was just that, that comparatively laid back. And it was a bigger crowd too. Right. Right. Well, I think resulting in all of that or or the decision that led to all of those specific implementations was the team realized we have to let it be known, no uncertain terms, that that kind of behavior is not OK. Oh, certainly. And and I, you know, I everybody there were a lot of people who ended up with the metaphorical black eye after this. Uh, the New York Times, uh, the next day or the day after, referred to it as the beer night that made Cleveland infamous. <laughs> as if it were not already. Yeah, poor Cleveland and its inferiority complex. Um, this certainly contributed to it. And there were positive things going on. We, you mentioned earlier not all that much was positive. Cleveland was was really growing at that point kind of on cult, pop cultural terms. And you had the rise of WMMS and Cleveland thinking of itself as a real breaking ground for new music, in particular kind of cutting-edge music. This was the first market that Springsteen really broke out of the New York area. You had a lot of European bands that made it here. Bowie made it here first. Roxy Music, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that was something, you know, people talk about the, the golden age of when people were going out and going to concerts and really participating in that lifestyle. And so, you know, there were some positive elements, but I think all of that was a response to, to the negative things going on with, you know, you, still ha- you were still declining. Uh, the industrial base was, was still going away. Jobs were still being lost. As you mentioned, people were still moving out in droves, at least out to the suburbs, if not, if not farther away. So it was, a, it was a way for people to express, I think, a certain real strong level of frustration uh, that was catalyzed by... Is that a word? Catalyzed by the beer, uh, which was uh, flowing freely. And uh, it's it's just one of those things. It's one of those moments that stands out by itself in history. Sure. And uh, Rush actually was uh, got a start in in no small part because of of WMMS. But you know the the stadium would also become known for its rock concerts. It wasn't that long before the first World Series of Rock was held at Cleveland Stadium, and and ultimately those you know, kind of came and went as well. Uh, But it was, that was, those were big crowds. And it was really, I I think the term I had heard used was that Cleveland was a breakout city where a lot of of bands could kind of come and be discovered and, you know, get a warm reception from, from fans. Because, you know, unlike, let's say, Nashville or Detroit, Cleveland never had a large, recording scene of its own but you know there it was one of those places 
because of WMMS, because of, you know, publications like Cleveland Scene, that because of women like Jane Scott uh, at The Plain Dealer, kind of became well known for its fans. Right. And receptive to new music. Right. And to new trends, not just the same old, same old, which is pretty ironic these days, isn't it? Considering what the, uh, say, the radio market is. Radio market has become here and, well, pretty much everywhere. It's same old, same old. You know, one of the other things, too, is we talked at some length about Cleveland Stadium. And one of the things that was going on in the city and with the sports teams is there are th- there were three big building booms for stadiums. The first one was in the uh, 1910s up to about 1925. Uh, Cleveland Stadium opened in the early 30s. It was really the outlier there. The second one was the 60s. That's when you started to see all of these uh, multi-purpose stadiums being built. RFK in Washington, Bush in St. Louis, Three Rivers in Pittsburgh, uh, Riverfront in Cincinnati. And Cleveland did not get in on that. And and I feel like one of the reasons is, quite honestly, they did not have, the city did not have the, the money to do it at that point. And, and I think part of it is there was no real demand for it by uh, by the Indians in particular. I mean, you know, I think the Browns were satisfied with the, the, the crowds they were drawing, but, I mean, the Indians were not going to be able to to do that as well. I mean, there were thoughts of, I mean, even as, as early as, like, 67 or 68, there were plans floated for a retractable roof at Cleveland Stadium, but that never happened. Um, obviously, you know, there were plans uh, thrown around for, a new stadium in Strongsville or maybe a football stadium where they ended up building Gateway at the old Central Market. But, um, you know, Cleveland Stadium was the venue that they had, and and some days it felt like the venue they were stuck with. All right, well, very interesting insight, very interesting look at uh, history of the team and of the city. Appreciate it very much, Vince Guerreri. Uh, any other thoughts? No, I, I, I feel like we've we've mostly hit the highlights. As a columnist for the Akron Beacon Journal, Bob Dyer earned over 80 regional and national writing awards. He was voted best columnist in the nation by the National Society of Professional Journalists in 2008 and best humor columnist by the National Society of Newspaper Columnists in 2013. He was named best columnist in Ohio by at least one professional journalism organization for six consecutive years. Dyer was one of the lead writers for A Question of Color, a year-long examination of racial attitudes in Akron that won a Pulitzer Prize in 1994. Bob is the author of The Top 20 Moments in Cleveland Sports, which includes an insightful and hilarious examination of 10 Cent Beer Night. Welcome, Bob. Thank you very much. How are you doing? Many are the credentials. I am doing excellently. All right, so we're talking 10 Cent Beer Night Riot, June 4th, 1974. How did you come across that story? And you have something very unique can't say very unique. Unique yeah. to you. There are not degrees of uniqueness. No, I, I tell I, that to my kids all the time. It makes beaten into my brain forever. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I hear it everywhere. Well, that yeah. was pretty unique. That yeah. was very unique. That yeah. was relatively unique. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, so what you have yeah. that no one else has yeah. is actual dialogue yeah. from the radio. So tell us how all this came about and how it ended up in a book. I did a book with a grand company in Cleveland called The Top 20 Moments in Cleveland Sports. And I went back through, you know, I've lived here my whole life, been a huge sports fan. So I just went back through my own memory and and sort of compiled a list of some of the big moments. Uh, Some of them are very obvious, 1964 Browns, uh, 1948 Indians. And one of the things Cleveland became very well known for was the Beer Night Riot. So I said, all right, um, that's one. That's got to be one of the chapters. First thing I did was went to uh, Cleveland State, where they have archives from the Cleveland Press and the Plain Dealer. Some great material there. Went through all that stuff and uh, realized that if I could get a hold of an actual recording of the broadcast, that would be really cool. The only person on the planet, apparently, who had that was Joe Tate. Wonderful guy. Nicest guy in the world. 
I'd known him for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. I, I did a profile of him when I was at the Worcester Daily Record right out of college, and he we got along fine. So I called him up and uh, found out that he did have a recording. It was just the last inning, I believe. And uh, so I went to his house, and I had a, my little cassette recorder there. And as he put this reel-to-reel tape on, the tape recorder was so old that he had to use a pencil and the take-up reel to turn it. So, so the quality was obviously not the best, but it was plenty good enough to find out what he was saying. And it was, it was really incredible to hear that. I'm I mean, sure it was yeah. riveting. Oh, it, it was amazing. Relive uh, the, the experience. Yeah. The anguish in the voices of Tate and Herb Score was incredible. I, that surprised me, as well as the cacophony of sounds in the background. So uh, that was really fun doing that. And I, I transcribed it, obviously, directly and used a lot of that in my chapter about beer night. Yeah. And what's the name of that book, which is still available, right? The Top 20 Moments in Cleveland Sports. From Gray? Uh, yeah. And I, I think it's probably still on Amazon and wherever good books are sold. As Absolutely. They say. Well, it, it's a it it's such it became the ur text of <laughs> stories uh, about the beer night, and you find it all over. You find those quotes all over the internet, with or without attribution. Yeah, often without attribution, which pisses me off. I will say, um, yeah. ESPN did a big take on beer night at one point and quoted uh, a lot from my my stuff and they did attribute did give me credit so as well they should so in going through that in the research that you did to write that up how did that compare with your memory of the actual event you know i was thinking about that this morning and i don't know how much of an impact that had on me at the time i mean it to me it was sort of another one of those things chicago had disco demolition night it was similar I mean, it was a different era, as as you know. Um, the, there, there were so many things going on. Um, There's sort of a rage against authority, Vietnam and Nixon, and the younger people were in no mood to <laughs> to be civil a lot of the times. The drinking age was 18. Uh, there was no mad, and the, the whole society was was pretty rough and uh, pretty booze inflamed. So. Um, I guess the, uh, I think the violence of it was something that surprised me as I, as I looked at it a second time around, read all the clips. I mean, players getting hit in the head with folding chairs and I just, that I didn't remember. I, I guess the highlights that I like to remember was the woman flashing in the on deck circle. That was a lot more fun, but there was some serious violence there. And it's, it's, it's amazing that, uh, nobody got seriously hurt. It is. It's it's actually a miracle because yeah. the the more you look into it, and we in in the telling the story, we try to convey sort of the mood changing over the course of the game, yeah. and there was hostility there uh, from early on because the media had so inflamed. Right. Um, you had Pete Franklin. Yeah. You had cartoons that very day in the in I think both of the papers. Of uh, you know involving pugilism uh, yeah. against the Rangers, yeah. and all this, of course, was due to the game just the week before. I think it was only five days before right. in Texas, yeah. where the, a major brawl had broken out, and the fans really took it out on the Indians in yeah. particular. And um, you know, so and at that time in 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 Cleveland sports history, or at least in Indians history, there hadn't been a whole lot going on with the Indians <laughs> for really quite a while. Yeah, there was nothing noteworthy whatsoever. They were very mediocre. They weren't even awful usually. Yeah. They were just kind of there. Yeah. And this team, at least, was flirting with five hundred and right. seemed to have some promise. And you know, by by June, of course, you're you're well into the season. And and the team did seem to have a little bit something going for it. So there was hope. Uh, I think you're absolutely right about the overall atmosphere where you, you, you really still had this, this break in the culture between young people. And not even necessarily by age, but by sort of cultural identification right. of coming out of uh, Vietnam, which wasn't even technically over yet. Right. And, and uh, just the whole cultural revolution the youth movement of the 50s and, of course, especially the 60s. And things hadn't found their equilibrium yet, I think. 
And so you still had a lot of hostility in both directions and, as you mentioned, authority. And so things were riled up a little bit, uh, in a sense, maybe a little bit artificially before the game. And things were fun early on. You know, ah, there's streakers and there's this middle-aged woman running on the field, flashing, trying to kiss the umpire. But man, it it got darker and darker. Explosions throughout the game, you know, firecrackers. Imagine any of that happening now oh it's unthinkable i mean the the people the authorities that swoop down and put an end to that or call off the game immediately it's amazing the game went as long as it did one of the things i was i really jumped out at me about talking to tate about this was he said he was talking to nestor shylock the home plate umpire after the game and at one point he looked down and there was a knife stuck in the ground right behind his heel that someone had thrown from the stands. He said at that point, that's it. We're out of here. I mean, that, it, like you said, it really is something of a miracle because the, the weapons, I mean, people in the stands wrenching seats out of the concrete, yeah. breaking off pieces of the metal yeah. and the players themselves going after fans with baseball bats. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, I don't yeah. want a professional baseball player yeah. coming at me yeah, with even, a bat. Even Billy Martin with a fungo bat. I don't want any part of that. <laughs> it's it's crazy. We've talked to Terry Yurkic, who sort of kicked it off, uh, the, the final riot by taking the hat uh, off of off Jeff uh, Burroughs. Yes, yeah. in right field. And his story is very interesting and 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 really fun. And he was just like, I, I don't know, it just it just came over me. It yeah. seemed like the thing to do. Did you ask him how many beers he'd had before that? He said he had uh, he had spent a few dollars at a dime each. <laughs> so that that adds up, you know. I mean, ten to a dollar. Yeah, even if it's three two beer, it's still uh, you drink enough, you get, gets you there. That is plenty. And he said, you know, he was young. He was like nineteen. Yeah. And, and what's so funny about him or interesting about him is. He had been a state champion wrestler. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. And uh, I think he was either his freshman or sophomore year of college when this happened. And, you know, so he was this excellent athlete, very well-trained athlete. And and it's it's funny, the, the battle sort of with Burroughs going into uh, karate mode and he slipped and fell, and yeah. that's what kicked it off. Yeah, and, and that if, if you were ever in the dugout at Municipal Stadium, the field was crowned. So if you're in the dugout, you really couldn't see below the knees of the right fielder. So when Burroughs slipped and went down, Billy Martin didn't know what was going on, and that's when he said, okay, guys, let's go out there and grab the fungo bat, and they ran out to right field. Um but it's, I mean, the whole concept today sounds insane. I mean, dime beer night, as I said in my chapter, uh, what's they could have done like a brass knuckles night or, <laughs> or free free spray paint for the first five thousand fans, or how about a little league promotion, Chief Wahoo switchblades? I mean, <laughs> it was insane. That the one of the funniest things I think is they actually did have a promotion for Mother's Day. Or they gave mothers free cans of deodorant. Honestly, in real life, that happened. This is the mentality of the Cleveland front office in those days. <laughs> well, they were really having a hard time drawing. Yeah. The stadium was so grim and was so huge. Yeah. And, you know, it took it took those those opening day, traditional opening day crowds that always filled it. Uh, you know, to make it even feel remotely anything like cozy and fun. Opening day, they'd get 74,000, and the second game, they'd get 5,000. I mean, year after year after year. And the payroll was always low. Yeah. You had a series of owners who yeah. really, you know, when you look at today's sports, they're all billionaires, right? all the owners. Right. And, I mean, you... If you don't pay to play, look what's happening with the Oakland A's. Yeah. Finally just giving up, yeah. moving on. Yeah. If, if you're an owner who is not willing to put in huge money, and these franchises are, are worth now billions of dollars. Yeah. And there's so much more money involved that everyone gets paid so much more. It was still more of a blue collar. It wasn't the blue collar game that it was way back. 
But even the 70s, you know, you had people just, uh, they weren't making $100,000 yeah, a year. Yeah, and uh, there's a remarkable change in the relationship between players in baseball and the other major sports in the media. In those days, you could sit down and talk to them, and you're both sort of on the same level. Now there are these elite people who are making millions and millions of dollars, and they really don't want to <laughs> – They want to manage everything that's said about them and it's there's no real personal relationships they have literal entourages yeah. and they have media people and representatives and they're surrounded by people yeah. i know what you mean it's a different world and players were still of course there was pressure to take care of yourself to be the best yeah. athlete you could be but there was a lot more wiggle room. If you rewind it a, a decade or so more, I remember in the NFL, most of the Browns had off-season jobs. They'd sell cars or whatever in the off-season because they just weren't making much money. Back to the beer night, um, I'm wondering how the entire cultural situation, do you think the fact that it was a more democratic time in terms of the difference between the, the, the socioeconomic difference between the players and the fans, did, did that lead to this happening the way it did? I mean... Yeah, I, I don't think so. I really don't. I think it was that just people were ready to party and they were pissed off at the world in general. Um, I don't think they, you know, I, I don't think they said, well, these people are... <laughs> I don't think it was a factor, I guess, frankly. Um, you know, another interesting thing about that episode was they had three more beer nights planned, and uh, the vice president, Ted Bonda, had no intention of canceling them, even after this. That's, that's another insight into their, their mentality. Finally, the American League president, uh, Lee McPhail, said, no, you're not going to do that again. So, um, But I just think it was a... Well, alcohol does amazing things to people, as you know, especially if you've had a couple bucks worth of dying beers. Um, so that and, the, the, like I say, the overall rage against society. Um, and just, uh, as you pointed out, it was a very youthful crowd. When you're in high school and college, you look at life a whole lot differently. It's like, I can do anything I want, kind of, until you find out you can't. Well, I guess ultimately what amazes me most about the whole thing, and think of how differently we would think about it in retrospect, is the fact that there weren't any deaths or even serious injuries. Yeah. Because when you have that many drunk people running around, all yeah. you'd have to do is have someone slip and fall yeah. and hit their head yep. or, on or, the concrete. Or they, they're throwing M80s all over the place. Somebody could have had an eye blown out very easily. It's, it, it is remarkable that there were no... I don't remember anybody even being hospitalized. I think, there, I think there were something like nine hospitalizations, but it was only overnight yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it was minor injuries. Yeah. It, it, it is amazing. Knives flying around, yeah. explosives yeah. flying around. Yeah. You know, uh, Mike Hargrove got hit with coins yes. playing first base, you know, tossed from the, from the stands. You look at some of the highlights um, of... of say, basketball games, people flooding the court. Um, I was watching a Reggie Jackson uh, special on, uh, I think it was Netflix the other day, and when he hit those three home runs in the World Series game, the fans just poured out of the stands, and he had to sort of muscle his way through to get back to the dugout at the end of the game. And, uh, I mean, that would never happen today. You'd have, well, they'd bring in the, you know, <laughs> the National Guard before that would happen. Yeah, Regarding that team, um, they did do well, and and they were uh, actually close to first place as late as August, and then they kind of petered out at the end and finished, you know, pretty well below five hundred. Any any thoughts on that team, and any memories of that? Any fa uh, favorite players from that team? Uh, I go back and look at the names and Frank Duffy and Lowenstein, and uh, it's just. It, it's a wonder they were 500. I mean, they're just, when I look at it, there just didn't seem to be that much talent. A lot of good fielders, uh, non-hitters. Um, but I, I, 
one of my favorites was Oscar Gamble, mostly because of his fro. Oh I man, mean, he was, had that fro. That was a he rivaled Dr. J with that fro, and that was fun. He put the batting head a helmet on. You think it was going to fly off at any moment? So they had some colorful guys, uh, but in terms of stars, I just I don't know. I I was surprised that they drew a million that year for the first time in ages. They had good. They had good starting pitching. Yeah, they had Gaylord Perry. Yeah. Yeah. And they had some some highlights. You know, you had a no hitter, right? And um, George Hendrick. You know, he's Hendrick an is an interesting character. I actually interviewed him one time. Um, I was working for I think it was in the summertime. I was I had a summertime job working for the Geauga Times Leader out in Chardon. Circulation was about seven thousand. And every once in a while, I'd go to the I get a press pass and go down and interview the guys at the stadium. And I showed up one night. Um, and George didn't recognize me because unlike most of the Cleveland media, I wasn't there all the time. So he thought I was from Milwaukee and I found out about two thirds of the way through the interview. So he was like chattering away and I got this exclusive. He wouldn't talk to any other Cleveland sports writer. Um, so that was fun, but only because he didn't know who I was. (laughs) (laughs) You caught him off guard. I did. Yeah. Silent George. Yeah. Yeah. Was loquacious George. Captain easy. He was very articulate, but he just didn't want to talk to anybody. Yeah, he was a, he was an enigma, and yeah. Uh, yeah, he he blossomed later. There were some people yeah. on that team who who did well yeah. later, uh, later on once they left poor Cleveland. That's yeah. still why there was oh the tragedy of of the World Series losses, you know, in the nineties, yeah. uh, especially ninety seven. Oh. Just yeah, it was right there. But I, actually, of all those teams in the late 90s, that was the least talented, I thought. I, I, Everything came together perfectly, and it, they just got this mojo going, and it carried almost all the way through. It is hard to believe but, the 95 team yeah. didn't win. Cause oh, they were phenomenal. Talk about magic. Yeah. You know, 100 wins in a <laughs> yeah. shortened season. I was at Game 7 in Miami in 1997. I was about, uh, I don't know, 10 rows back toward the end of the game. I'd been in the press box, and I came down, and uh, I just... I couldn't even believe what I was seeing. I thought, finally, after an entire lifetime of trying to win one damn World Series, that we were so close. I certainly was. We were watching at my my father-in-law's house, and we were so excited and just so revved up. Yeah. And, yeah, it's like it's finally happening. Yeah. But the 95 team, I mean, I think their seven-hole hitter was hitting 300. I think Tomey was batting seventh for a while. I, I mean, it was astounding. Staggering. Yeah. I mean, that lineup and the pitching, yeah. I mean, it just had everything. Yeah. They just, yeah. they just, it was like they seemed to feel in the World Series, like, yeah, we don't really have to try that hard. Well, yeah. it'll, it'll come together. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Well, I think they also ran into the one of the best pitching staffs ever assembled. I mean, true. <laughs> those Braves were amazing. Because it wasn't even that close. They lost yeah. in six, right? Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah that, was, that was tough. All right, well, we're celebrating uh, an, an event that um, probably is not worth <laughs> celebrating. I think remembering would be a better way to put it. I'm, We're chronicling <laughs> yeah, uh, something that happened. Yeah, and yeah. and and so here we are lo- looking back to a different time when... <laughs> when you and I had a lot more hair than we have now. Oh, way, <laughs> way more hair. I, I think that year, that was, that was among my hairiest years. And we had a little more on our fastball in those days. Yeah, we did. I had friends from from the team, from my high school team. I was in high school at Chagrin Falls, and yeah. friends who were there, yeah. and uh, they went to a lot of the games. That's another thing that's so different. You could afford to just pick up right. and go. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was uh, five bucks. I don't know. Maybe I can't even remember what it was. But the it, attendance was so bad back in the seventies. I remember going to a game. It was a twinite doubleheader, which they don't even have anymore most of the time. And they're playing the Yankees. And I showed up, I think, midway for, through the first game. And I said, hey, do you have any box seats left? And they sold me two tickets. I was like one row behind the Yankees dugout. I just showed up, and there I was. I mean, it's, it, there was so little interest most nights. Yeah. Uh, and, and just the value put on that real estate 
you know, was yeah. so different. And yeah. you didn't have all these layers of reselling tickets, right, right. all the fees attached. Yeah. It just really was a different time. It was a much smaller scale. So, yes. you know, I wonder how the athletes feel. People who've been around long enough to know the difference between then and now and or have seen the evolution how they feel about it i mean sure it's pretty great to be making literally tens of millions of dollars mm-hmm. yeah. but it's but it's a very different feel uh, yeah. there's so much more pressure and you are so every every single movement is scrutinized i think i don't think any of the modern players have any sense of what it was like 20 years ago i mean they they can read about it but you, unless you've lived through it i'm not sure it has but I don't think it registers with them how different it was. Yeah, and and how much more you know, quote unquote, normal. Yeah, professional play, and not professional, but major league. I mean, that was still the absolute apex. These were the right. best players in the world. Right. Period. Right. And you still were relatively undervalued. Yeah. You know, by pay, by recognition, yeah. compared to other entertainers, for sure. Right. And, you know, even the, I mean, sure, there's always been superstars and they always got plenty of attention. That's probably the biggest difference is in that, that medium, that mid-level player, you know, the journeyman. I mean, they really didn't get a whole lot of attention. They didn't get a whole lot of money. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bob Dyer. What a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Eric. I enjoyed it. Good time. Join us next week as we launch Heading for Home, dramatizing the 10-cent beer night riot at Cleveland Stadium on June 4th, 1974.